All right, if you can turn in your Bible, if you have one, to um, Matthew chapter 5, we'll look at verses 21 through 26, and the text is printed there in the bulletin on the next page. Um, So we're in uh, Matthew's Gospel, we're in particularly the Sermon on the Mount, which is the first sermon that uh, is recorded here uh, that Jesus gives in Matthew's Gospel. And there's a real flow to it. Uh, it. It can be difficult for us to perceive the flow because we're so used to seeing these, you know, distinct chapter titles and little headers of little paragraphs in bold that make it seem like these uh, uh, little paragraphs are uh, really distinct and separate from each other. But there's a flow. There's a flow to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we need to follow it. Uh, we need to follow the flow. He's he's just said that his uh, life and his works and his teachings are in no way contrary to the Hebrew Scriptures, the Word of God, uh, but rather that he came to fulfill the Scriptures, what we understand to be the Old Testament. He came to fulfill that. Uh, It might be that his message is not recognized by the people who were supposed to be most familiar with the Old Testament, but it is the message of the Old Testament. It's the message of the same kingdom of heaven, the same blessed life with God that the Old Testament proclaims. So, you know, there's no God of the Old Testament who's versus the God of the New Testament or over and against the God that Jesus reveals to us. Uh, so it isn't Jesus who would relax the requirements of God's law, even though Jesus talks about grace a lot. And uh, uh, we sometimes have a difficult, under, difficult time understanding how grace and law interact. Uh, but it's not him who would relax the requirements of God's law. It's actually the religious experts who emphasize uh, a merely external compliance with God's law. Those are the ones who relax the requirements of God's law. So what, what Jesus says might not resonate with them, with the, with the uh, religious experts, but he is revealing the heart of what God has already said. That's what he's said so far. And now he goes on to give several examples of this, uh, uh, sort of contrasting the merely external obedience that's taught by the religious experts, uh, contrasting that with the heart of God's commandments. That's what he does over the next several paragraphs, which will take the next several weeks to look at. Uh, and he doesn't just insist on the true requirements of God's law, uh, which are ultimately uh, you know, beyond our ability to fulfill. Uh, he doesn't just insist on them in order to leave us in despair or with a sense of inescapable condemnation because we can't fulfill God's law. <clears throat> he gets to the heart of the commandments really in order to reveal God's love to us, who God is. To show us his true nature and his character, to show his beautiful love. And in Jesus, uh, we have this human being whose life has uh, completely resonated with God's commandments. He is the blessed one, and and he opens up his own spirit-filled life to us, to change us and to make our lives also resonate with the kingdom life that's revealed in the scriptures. So that's what we'll talk about with regard to uh, anger in particular this morning. Uh, So let me pray, and we'll read the scripture. Father, make yourself known to us uh, through your word. We pray that you would change us through this relationship that we have with you uh, in your son's name. Amen. <clears throat> Jesus said, that you, heard, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable, liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, 
If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Sorry. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. <clears throat> so there, this, uh, this is sort of the opening sequence that we get over the next several paragraphs. You've heard that it was said to those of old, this, but I say to you, this. <clears throat> it might sound like Jesus is saying, you've heard it said in the Old Testament, you shall not murder, etc., but I say different. Uh, we know he's definitely not saying that because his whole argument is that he does teach what the scriptures teach. Right? That's the, the very argument that he's making is that what he is saying is exactly what the Old Testament scriptures teach. <clears throat> so he isn't correcting scripture here. When he said, you heard this, but I say this, he's not correcting scripture. Um, he's, he's correcting the scribes and Pharisees as they understand scripture. Right? So they say, Scripture teaches this, and Jesus says they're wrong about that. Let me tell you what it actually teaches. <clears throat> right? So the idea here is that the religious experts had relaxed the requirements of God's commandments by saying, uh, by, by talking about murder specifically only with regard to that action, right? by saying that God only demands this outward behavioral compliance with his law, God only forbids the external physical act of murder. But Jesus would reveal the heart of the commandment to go deeper than that, deeper than the physical expression, the physical act of murder or homicide, right? He would reveal the heart of the commandment to go deeper. The scriptures do indeed prohibit the act of murder. It's right there in the uh, Ten Commandments, the the big ones, right? Uh, It's the Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder. And the scriptures do indeed teach that murderers will be liable to judgment, as the religious experts rightly say. It says in Numbers 35, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is, of, of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he should be put to death. There's no escape from his judgment. A murderer is guilty of death, he should be put to death. Right? So, <clears throat> so they have a kernel of truth in their understanding of Scripture, their teaching of, about Scripture, these religious experts. But Jesus says that the commandments and judgments of God are meant to go deeper than just political codes or uh, social, behavioral ethics. <clears throat> in his divine authority, Jesus says, but I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So religious experts, you know, they left the door open for these secret feelings of anger and disdain and contempt and hatred. And these teachers of God's law would say, as long as these secret feelings stay secret, they don't find outward physical expression, then in our private judgment... (laughs) Uh, these feelings must be permissible. They must be permissible because we can't escape them. You can stop yourself from murdering somebody, probably. You can't stop yourself from having angry feelings. In fact, they would have made the restriction as narrow as possible, really. Uh, Your hostility can even manifest in insults. 
just don't kill anybody, right? Um, But Jesus says that God sees these things as connected. He sees the heart, and in his judgment, not our private judgment, but in his judgment, which he reveals to us in the scriptures, uh, the secret motives are just as important as the outward acts, if not more so. It is God's judgment that Jesus is talking about here. Who else is going to see into your heart and see your anger? How are you going to be liable to judgment if it's just something secret in your heart, like anger? What's well, God's judgment that he's talking about? So Jesus says the commandments and the judgments of God go that deep, and he closes the door even to the secret feelings of anger and hatred. Uh, his commandments teach this integrated, holistic spiritual life that goes all the way down and all the way out into your actions, which probably, uh, you know, should be more obvious to us. It should be more obvious to us that these things are related. My heart is connected to my actions. It should be more obvious. <clears throat> Where does the outward act of murder come from? It comes from my heart. It comes from the heart. And Jesus says the heart that hates is essentially the same as the heart that kills. It's the same thing. Uh, whether you commit the physical act of murder or whether you insult someone or even just harbor bitterness and resentment and anger that no one but God can see, the same judgment awaits because God's commandment has been broken, truly. God's judgments don't rely on external visible actions alone. He doesn't have to see you physically, externally breaking the law. God sees the heart. He knows the heart. So we have no secrets from him. He's not fooled. When maybe outwardly we act politely with a smile on our face, but inwardly we hold malice toward others. He's not fooled by that. The one who is angry, he says, is the same as the one who's guilty of murder on death row. So just a brief caveat. I'm talking about anger. There is such a thing as holy anger. Holy anger is possible. It is possible to do, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, be angry and do not sin. Uh, God's anger is holy. Jesus' anger is righteous because his anger is a facet of his love and he, his, his anger seeks what is good. But that's not the kind of anger Jesus is talking about here. That's not the kind of anger he's talking about. He's talking about the kind of anger that is opposed to the other person. Uh, He's talking about the kind of anger that is harmful to a relationship, the kind of anger that we pretty much always experience as sinners. So the being of God is love, the the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The being of the one true God is love. The, The essence of God's life is love. God delights in life. He's the source and creator of life. He's the Lord of life. And he gave human beings life in his image, which means he made us to live by love, even as he lives by love. Love is supposed to be the essence of our life, too. We're meant to love God and to love others who are in God's image also. So when the image of God in us sees the image of God in other people, we're meant to be filled with this delighting love, this serving love. But when we're angry at someone else who's in God's image. When we're angry with a hateful anger, we're ruining our relationships, we're rejecting his image in other people, we're revolting against the God of love who gives life. 
And that's what's really wrong with sinful anger. And that's why it stands under the same judgment as physical murder. The one who murders attacks physically and outwardly the image of God in another person. The one who murders rids himself of the victim, ends the relationship by ending the life of the other person. And so, but Karl Barth says, uh, the offender against the life of his fellows in the primitive sense is to be found in a preliminary form in all men, even though it does not usually result in the crime itself. In most of us, the murderer is suppressed and chained, possibly by the command of God or possibly by no more than circumstances, convention, or the fear of punishment. Yet he's very much alive in his cage and ready to leap out at any time. There exists in man a very deep-seated and almost original evil readiness and lust to kill. The common murderer or homicide is simply the one in whom the wolf slips the chain. So the, the one who is merely angry is the same wolf. He just hasn't slipped his chain. Uh, The one who is merely angry nurses the brokenness of a relationship, prefers the brokenness of a relationship in his anger, which God sees and God declares to be essentially the same thing as murder. The one who is merely angry opposes life as love. Murder is obviously a failure of love. Jesus reveals that sinful, hateful anger is the same kind of failure. It's a failure of love. And where love fails, there is death. Physical death, spiritual death, relational death. Because in the triune God's reality, life is love. So 1 John chapter 3 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That's what John's talking about here in 1 John 3. So, in our Old Testament reading, which Holly read, God set before us life and death. There's a way of life, and there's a way of death. And he urges us to choose life, but when we're angry, and when we maintain relational brokenness, we're choosing death. We hate our neighbors for being of a different political party, and so we're choosing death. We're bitter toward our co-workers for making our jobs difficult, so we're choosing death. We despise those who make us look bad by comparison. We disdain people who are different from us in race or gender or socioeconomic status. We fume at our kids for getting out of control and so on and so forth, and in doing all that, we choose death. We kill the relationships, we murder and die to each other in our hearts, and eternal life doesn't abide in us. Our anger brings about relational disintegration, which is the very judgment that we are liable to. That's what fire means, as a picture of judgment in the scriptures. Fire as a picture of judgment, it signifies this. It's not just the pain of literal flames consuming your flesh, the atoms, the basic building blocks of your physical body, it's the pain of the disintegration of the basic elements of your humanity. The basic elements of your humanity are being disintegrated and burned up, particularly the relationships that make us who we are in God's image, love. 
So Jesus refers to the hell of fire that we face in God's judgment. That was a literal place. Uh, this, uh, if it were be, to be transliterated, uh, it would be Gehenna, right? So maybe you've heard that word. It's, it's a way of talking about the Valley of Hinnom, which is sort of outside of Jerusalem. Um, <clears throat> someone with, who is familiar with the Old Testament would know this uh, as the place where people went to sacrifice their children to Molech, uh, throwing them into the fire as burnt offerings to this false god. So talk about opposing life. Talk about choosing death. They would murder their own children in the fires of Gehenna for selfish purposes. Can't be anything other than selfish purposes. To get Molech to give them what they asked. So Jesus is drawing connections here, I think, between sinful anger and human sacrifice. Jesus is saying that those who are sinfully angry reap not just the judgment of fires, but specifically the fires of that place, the place where relationships of love are so violently destroyed. Murder has no place in God's kingdom. Hatred has no place in the kingdom of the God of love. So Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, uh, the works of the flesh are evident, and he has a whole list of things, but among them are you know, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul again says in Ephesians chapter 4, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. It has no place among the people of God and the kingdom of God. Someone who has a true relationship with the God of love, a true citizen of the kingdom of heaven, will not only put away sinful anger from their own hearts, but will actively pursue the restoration of broken relationships. Anger is about tearing down relationships and maintaining the brokenness of them. Someone who's, who belongs to Christ, citizen of, of the kingdom of God, uh, will actively pursue restoration of the brokenness, healing of the brokenness. So he says in verse 23 of our passage, So, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. This is an amazing thing Jesus is saying here. He's talking about anger in our hearts. And then he says, Therefore, if you're aware of your brother's anger against you, go and fix that. I mean, that's, he doesn't say, if you're in worship and remember that you're angry with your brother. He says, if you remember that your brother has something against you, if your brother is perhaps angry with you for some reason, for some offense of yours, right? So real relationship with God means pursuing the healing of relationships. The people of, of this God of love should be such a, peop, a people of love that we look to overcome not only our own anger and hostility, but to restore relationships with brothers and sisters in the church especially who might be angry with us because of what we've done. We don't want anger to exist anywhere, not in my heart, not in your heart. We're not allowed to not care if someone is angry with us. You're not allowed to not care. John Calvin says, so long as a difference with our neighbor is kept up by our fault, we have no access to God. It is a false and empty profession of worshiping God, which is made by those who, after acting unjustly toward their brethren, treat them with haughty disdain. Right? So when Jesus says, Leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother. He's not saying that human reconciliation 
uh, is more important than reconciliation with God. He's not saying that it takes precedence over worship or that it has uh, a higher priority than bringing gifts to God, your, your sacrifices to God, your relationship with God. <clears throat> He's saying that the two things are so connected you can't have one truly without the other. He's saying that if you allow relationships to go unreconciled and broken, whether it's your anger or somebody else's anger, and you, you can't come together as brothers and sisters in the church anymore because of it, <clears throat> if you allow those relationships to go on broken, then you, you can't possibly worship the God of love. Such worship would be hollow. It's not genuine. And it isn't just that we're trying to pursue reconciliation with fellow believers, but even with enemies or accusers who would take us to court. Right? We're to seek to diffuse their anger and restore those relationships, too. We should want those to be good relationships. The only alternative is to allow the brokenness of relationship to continue, and someone who worships the God of love and reconciliation can't do that. Uh, so, like we said last week, the requirements of God's law are impossible for sinners to fulfill. Um, I can't even imagine going a day without sinful anger in my own heart, let alone caring to restore all relationships with anybody who might be angry with me. Sinners are defined by relational disintegration. We've chosen it. But Jesus didn't just teach that this was, you know, this is all out of step with God's kingdom. He came to do something about it. The God of love delights in life, and he made us in his own image. And our murder, our anger, our opposition to life, the God of life, it means death. <clears throat> As it says in Genesis 9, God says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So the righteous requirement of God's commandment is death. It's the death of murderers. The death of those who attack God's image in other people. In their anger, their secret anger. The death of those who embrace death. That's the righteous requirement of God's law. Jesus is the Lord of life. Come in the flesh to renew God's image in humanity. Come to embrace life for us and to embrace love and to redeem us from sin and death. When we saw him, we do what murderers do. You know, we murdered him. We did murder. Um, we rejected the image of God in Jesus. We rejected the God of life and love himself when we rejected Jesus. We nailed him to the cross and we insulted him and we left him there to die. We attributed everything that was wrong with the world to him. And we declared him to be utterly forsaken. And in that moment of our unholy anger, when we murdered the Son of God, Jesus suffered the judgment that we were liable to, as if he had been the murderer, as if he had been the one who violated God's image, as if he had been the one who had rejected life and embraced death. <clears throat> he went to the cross to die, but that was for love's sake. He was embracing life. He was not embracing death by going to the cross for us. He was embracing life. He was pursuing reconciliation between us and God. In a sense, he left his gift at the altar, right? He left his home in heaven to come and restore what was broken in our relationship with God. He, you know, we took him to court. He was the innocent one that we took to court where he paid every last penny of our debt of guilt to God. 
And as he hung there on the cross, even, even there, hearing our insults and feeling his pain, his heart was free from the kind of sinful anger that we experience at the smallest slight, at the smallest inconvenience. He didn't revile in return. He prayed for our forgiveness, and he suffered the hell of fire. His body wasn't literally in flames, but he suffered the relational disintegration that we deserve in order to reintegrate us in relationship with God. So his self-sacrifice for us was the greatest act of worship. He did it for love's sake. He did it because he's in the image of God. Behold Jesus, and you behold the true nature of God, the true character of God. He chose life for you, even though it meant his own death, so that you could choose life in a relationship with him. He gives you life in the kingdom of heaven. He opens his spirit-filled life to you, his own life, spirit-filled life, to change you so that you would resonate with his own life in you. So, to continue from Galatians, where we said, you know, Paul, Paul says, you know, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Belonging to Jesus. And that means union. That means life with the Lord of life. His death on the cross under God's judgment was not the end of his story. God's judgment of Jesus in our place ultimately resulted in his uh, resurrection. So Jesus lives forever now, the, the risen Lord. Life is love with him. So when you belong to him, it means your sin no longer defines you, just like his death no longer defines him, doesn't define his existence. His resurrection life defines his existence. And so your sin doesn't define you. The judgment that you deserve, the relational disintegration you deserve for your anger is not the final hopeless word standing over your life. You so belong to Jesus that when he was crucified, your sinful self was crucified with him. That's how close the union is. When he was crucified, your angry passions were crucified. That's what Paul says. In fact, uh, somehow... Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, Jesus became your sinful self on the cross. He became your sinful self on the cross so that when he died, your sin died. And its power in your life was broken. And now you're free of it. You're no longer a slave to anger in Christ. You're no murderer yourself that embraced death. That self is dead. Now the resurrection life of the Lord of life is alive in you. His spirit is alive in you. And that means love. And it means all the other fruit of the Spirit. So, so walk in the Spirit. Walk in Christ, whose Spirit is your Spirit. His love is your love. His patience is your patience. His kindness is your kindness. His gentleness is your gentleness. His humble willingness to go and be reconciled to his sinful brothers is your humble willingness to go and be reconciled to your brothers. That's what it means for you to be renewed in the image of God and him and to live in his kingdom. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we see in your Son uh, the end of our sinful anger, the complete and utter end. We see relationships restored. We see the true worship of God, the God of love in you. Help us to embrace life in you. Help us to find our life 
with you and with each other in your sacrifice. Help us to consider our old, angry, sinful selves to be crucified and dead in Christ. Help us to walk by your Spirit, to live as citizens of your kingdom. Our only hope is that you would set us free from anger and all the sinful passions of our hearts. Our only hope is that you would set us free to love as you have loved us. And if our hope is in you, then it is well-placed, because you say you have set us free for love's sake. We believe, Lord. Help our unbelief. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare to come to the table now, let's stand and confess our faith together using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So today, the comments that I usually give at the table, I'm going to give now so that we can see the passing of the peace together as our sort of introductory time at the, the Lord's table uh, for the opportunity that it is. So, so we're talking about communion. With the triune God, communion is life, life is communion, life is love. Uh, Therefore, communion, true communion, requires reconciliation. Jesus has accomplished this reconciliation, so you don't need to worry about making yourself right with God, trying to feel like you deserve to be at this table uh, before you actually come, uh, before you feel you belong or whatever. Uh, Jesus has made you right with God once and for all, and he invites you to this table. But you also can't possibly be interested in truly worshiping this God without also being reconciled to your brothers and sisters in your heart. And, uh, and really. So when you come to this table, you're coming to a feast of reconciliation. You're coming to a feast of love. And you're given the privilege of participating in the life of Christ. So come to it as such a feast. Come to it as such a privilege. As such an opportunity. Come to God, this God, as the God of reconciling love. Be reconciled to one another. And come. Right? So as you pass the peace of Christ to each other, as, and as you receive it from each other, uh, believe it and enjoy it and be reconciled, be thankful for it. Amen. So let's, uh, let's have this side go first. You can say the peace of Christ be with you. And you respond also with you. And then we'll have the handshaking personal version. So uh, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let's greet one another with words of peace. Peace of Christ be with you. Amen.